0: I've been told I can't talk about beavers in every other episode of this podcast. So what does a beaver believer do? Talk about beaver-adjacent content, like watersheds and springs. This year, I've had the pleasure of learning a ton about springs in the Southwest, and we've had a few episodes with experts and enthusiasts around watersheds, springs, and you know it's coming, beavers, and even otters. Today I spoke with Christina Selby, creator of the Springs of the Southwest Project, and found out what it's like telling the story of the Southwest's disappearing biodiversity hotspots. Stay tuned. This is a great one. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Christina Selby is a conservation photographer, filmmaker, and science writer who uses multimedia storytelling as a powerful tool to share the beauty of the planet and motivate others to act on behalf of nature. She uses aerial, macro, landscape, underwater, remote camera, photojournalism, and any other technique required to tell engaging stories that speak to our shared need for beauty and connection to nature. Her storytelling focuses on remembering who we are, what we can be, and our place in the world as caretakers. She's the author of The Best Wildflower Hikes of New Mexico, New Mexico Family Outdoor Adventures, and producer and co-director of the feature documentary Saving Beauty, Learning to Live with the Rare Ones Among Us. In 2022, she became an emerging league member of the International League of Conservation Photographers.
1: In 2018, I got involved in this project here in New Mexico at a place called Santa Rosa, where they have these incredible wetlands. And I actually started working on our a video project, a film project with our state botanist at the time on this rare plant species, the pecos sunflower. And it only grows in these alkaline, these salty wetlands that are spring fed. And... For a long time, my focus was just on that plant, learning about the plant and plant conservation. Plants and wildflowers in particular are one of my passions. But then there was this ecosystem that they grow in, these spring springs, and they are all over this place in Santa Rosa. There's about 14 named mapped springs, and then more probably that aren't on the map yet. And they are these places that where the water from our Sacramento Mountains east of Santa Rosa. The snow and the rain infiltrates into those mountains, goes underground, travels for thousands of years underwater, and hits this rock formation that's impermeable near Santa Rosa. And so that water comes up to the surface in this area. And that's a typical story of springs, the sort of journey of water that I've been on to learn about springs. And in these places, there are sinkholes. Some people call them cenotes. So you hear about cenotes from Mexico; these incredible places that are underground and have these just spotlights of water coming in. You know, these are more open, but it's the same idea. And so the springs are coming up from under the ground and creating these sinkhole lakes, or in other places, it's just water coming up in a sort of a muddy, wet meadow and creating this like bacterial formation that is really unique. And Larry Stevens believe some of that bacteria is the same as is what's found in sea floor vents on the floor of the ocean. And I just started learning more and more about the incredible biodiversity. There's like a fish, tiny little desert fish species that doesn't even have a name or a scientific description yet that's been found there. There's rumors of a type of sponge, freshwater sponge in the bottom of one of those lakes that might be a totally new species. And so I started getting more interested in ecosystems formed by springs in the desert southwest. And you come into this area of Santa Rosa, it's surrounded by really dry juniper, chihuahua, almost just getting right on the edge of the Chihuahuan desert. And there's water and it feels different. And you can feel the moisture in the air and the energy of the place is different. and. And so that's where my spring's journey started and Larry Stevens and Bob Savinsky, who is a, one of the state botanists from years ago, he's 30 years, but he's still involved in a lot of this work. They organized a bio blitz in 2021 to look at, get a bunch of different scientists, a lot of people specializing in tiger beetles and dragonflies and bees and various kinds of insects and lichen and for a weekend we all got together and there's about 20 to 25 of us and just counted the species that are found in this area that are unique and I believe that there were at least three sightings of a species of dragonfly that had never before been seen in New Mexico and there's a, a possibly a new fish species being described and a new sna- spring snail species being described and so That story of the biodiversity of this place is fairly common across the Southwest. One, they're pretty unknown. And two, they contribute, each of them, a few species that are found nowhere else on this planet. And so together, all these springs across the Southwest are a major contributor to our biodiversity. And Larry Stevens will tell you somewhere around 10% of species on the endangered species list are dependent on springs for one or more parts of their life cycle. And that's just the ones that we know of so far. And so they're very rich places. And because they are sources of water and they emerge from the, these dark aquifers underground and spill across this arid desert, they create a lot of life in an otherwise really harsh landscape. And myself, as a photographer, as an artist, as a documentarian, I really find the story of springs, there's a lot of richness in looking at our relationship with nature and how springs reflect that across the Southwest.
0: I'm thinking about what this has done for you personally since 2018 as a photographer, as a storyteller, and have you had to learn new things? Are there challenges that you hadn't really experienced before?
1: Yeah, so it's been like a process of digging deeper into my skill set and learning new things. Like you said, I've had to figure out how to photograph underwater with only a couple inches, things that are only a couple centimeters big, in a way that might be attractive to people. Though they might want to learn about these small little species living in these uh, incredibly small habitats, a lot of them. And they're also very subtle in their beauty a lot of times. They're not like the grand mountain peaks or the... That incredible everglades. You just point your camera in a direction. And it pretty much turns out these have really had to work with composition and lighting and showing up at the right time and coming back over and over to really figure out what's beautiful and what I can tell the story about and what is going to be of interest to people to to draw them into the to this spring story. And it's been a process of several years. I'll probably still be working on this several years from now. But it's also moving me into inspiration to try other to mix other things with my photography that photography quite can't tell because a lot of the story happens underground right in the aquifers where the water comes from and Larry Stevens he's a scientist but he also is really great at coming up with these metaphors that sort of feed my creativity like he talks about the underground water as the groundwater as the black box we can't see it right so how do you photograph something you can't see And how do you tell the story about it visually? I've been playing with adding oil painting to some of my images to tell the story of the the journey of water underground. I've been playing with some audiovisual multimedia sounds of water and having people experience it auditorily. Yeah, it's really, I'm definitely on a journey. Not only my technical skills, but also these really rich metaphors that help me create and document this story in new ways.
0: I just now noticed you're a, a two-wheel enthusiast.
1: <laughs> yeah, you saw
0: that. I yeah, I just did. That's when I came out and saw Larry. I was doing the Arizona BDR and the New Mexico BDR sections and on a Royal Enfield Himalayan. I have no idea what that bike is, but it looks pretty fun and cool and is that something you've always done or have you found it easier to access less Uh, ecologically damaging and uh, tell me a little bit about that. That seems really good.
1: That is brand new for me this year. So my family got this little cabin in the woods in the Hama's mountains, and there's a lot of old forest roads that are open to biking and, and hunters and things. And my husband grew up dirt biking in like the Western Colorado. And we wanted to try it with our boys. but So our bikes are all electric, which I'm loving because they're super quiet and don't create a lot of disturbance. We don't have to worry about gas and oil as we're traveling through there. And I was inspired by when we go to my cabin, we have to drive through Abiquiu every year. And I'm always seeing this picture of Georgia O'Keeffe on the back of a motorcycle going out to yeah to her paintings and exploring New Mexico. So, okay, she can do it. <laughs> I'm going to try this. I'm going to try bringing my camera gear going on there's just so many places you can go i love hiking i love backpacking i can backpack all day long out there but with age i don't mind having a couple wheels under me that are quiet and fun too
0: yeah i i i think it's pretty cool your bike is pretty cool i've never seen one of those before
1: yeah it's got these really fat tires so it's nice and cushy and comfy for me riding it and it's been a lot of fun to learn to do that and there's a lot of springs in the Hemas, and they're often really remote, as you probably experienced. Similar to the Mogollon Rim, I read a few statistics. There's probably thirty thousand springs from California to West Texas, and another twenty-five thousand in the state of Nevada alone. But they're all these tiny little isolated islands, and so unless it's a complex like I was describing in Santa Rosa and. Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge in, in Nevada is another large complex of springs where there's a bunch of springs concentrated in the area, but mostly they're going to be half mile, several miles apart. And so I'm definitely looking forward to getting on the bike and seeing more of the springs in that area and possibly other using it in other areas that I can go to.
0: It was uh, probably the 90s when I realized that different people, uh, depending on their interests, can have a different map in their mind of the same landscape. And, and when I realized that I was, I can't remember the name of the group, wings, something, uh, took us on a trip, uh, from Albuquerque, uh, down into Northern Mexico for a story, uh, that was being done by high country news on the work for sky islands. And, and I just realized then. The map for somebody who flies is completely different. Your gas stations are at little airports that nobody even sees or hears about. If you're a car person, if you're a motorcycle person, if you travel in different ways, you start looking at maps differently. If you study different things, you start thinking about places differently. And I imagine the map in your head for the places that you love and that you've studied uh, most closely looks like it's very spring specific.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's an interesting way of thinking about it and just talking with a friend of mine about the mythology of maps and how each of us has a different map in our head. And I think each conservation photography project I take on gives me another way of exploring the world. And for springs, I'm often traveling in areas of the Southwest that nobody else is going to. Big ranches, large grasslands in Southeast New Mexico. Little pockets of the Mojave Desert, way off the beaten path, uh, and I'm like looking at Google Earth, or somebody gave me a GPS point, or I'm just like looking at named springs, which are often had been put on the map in the early century and are like miles off the actual spring, and so it's a, a little bit of a hunt to find these places in the first place, get there, and see if there were, if there's a story that I can tell looking at them, and so I've been I've been across the Southwest from Western Texas to Nevada, and I haven't gotten so much into California or down into Mexico yet, but I'd like to do that a couple times, two or three times now, putting 1,200 miles each way on the car, finding these, these springs, meeting up with scientists, and... It's showing up in the LaSalle Mountains, which are arid mountains of Utah, and dropping into a little spring on the side of a mountain and sitting there for several hours and enjoying 35 different species of migratory birds using it. And so I have this map in my head, and then birds have the map in their head, and they know where each spring along their migratory pathway is, that they can stop and rest and refuel and find food and find the water they need. And so the the animals, the mammals, terrestrial mammals, the big animals also have a map in their head of where the springs are. I have a remote camera set up in the Sandia Mountains on a spring there. And so far, I've photographed black bear, several kinds of hawk, mountain lion, many, many turkey, and smaller things like squirrels and ringtails and all kinds of birds coming to use this teeny little spring. And the ecosystem isn't more than. 500 feet before it gets absorbed back into the ground, but they all know where the spring is and they come there to use it. And so it's it's a map that this project and this map has really connected me to the Southwest in a new way and gotten to know how a little bit I think of like how birds and mammals and small insects see the landscape. Biohabitats is proud to sponsor this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast during the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And always, Biohabitats applies the science of ecology to restore degraded ecosystems, conserve habitat, and regenerate the natural systems that sustain all life on Earth. Ecological restoration is positive action that you can take and support today. It's also incredibly rewarding and a lot of fun. Learn how you can get involved in the U.N. Decade on Ecosystem Restoration by exploring the links and extra credit at rewilding.org slash pod.
0: So if you, for thousands of years, have an instinctual memory of a way to go north and south or to migrate in general, and you have your little rest stops, talk about the importance of their map remaining the same and us not adjusting it by ruining a spring or a piece of watershed that's so vital, it may be tiny, but it means everything to migratory birds.
1: Yeah, exactly. So on the one hand, over thousands of years, some springs have remained permanent. Depends on the water, their source water. If some springs have source water that is really deep aquifer, it's been there since the last ice age, it was formed there in the last ice age, and that water is still coming to the surface. Other springs are more kind of a flash in the pan. They're going to have water after a big event, a big rainstorm. So these animals, while they depend on each spring, they can be a little bit adaptable to changing their course a bit. But what I find really fascinating about these springs is, Larry Stevens will tell you that they are one, if not the most endangered ecosystem in the arid southwest. But on the other hand, they're also one of the most resilient if that aquifer remains intact. And so there have about 90% of springs in the southwest, the data is showing, are already damaged or dead, meaning they're not functioning. There's no longer water there, or they've been so altered that they don't function as the ecosystem anymore. But all, a lot of the restoration that has happened on these individual springs if that water is there and the water comes back that vegetation the seed bank is often still there the vegetation comes back and those ecosystems revitalize fairly quickly and there's a lot of low hanging fruit in terms of keeping these corridors for the migratory path of these birds and for the movements of mammals across the landscape that we can one of the reasons i like working on this story and is there, there's a good amount of hope involved in all these tiny little springs if they just had one person caring for them and protecting their boundaries and making sure the water stays there and they're not being trampled by people or ungulates too much or cattle or whatever it is, that ecosystem can return and those spaces can be there for, as they have been for thousands of years for the species that need them.
0: Yeah. Uh Dave. Foreman always loved to get into discussions about flyways, and we even were stumped in in our Heartland program, Iowa and Wisconsin, and all the way down to Louisiana, the Mississippi watershed, basically, trying to figure out how a place that's been so radically changed with roads, with buildings, but just huge networks of canals, even the waterways themselves being so radically changed. How are we going to rewild here? How do we even pitch it? Like, how do we conceive of this thing? And the map that became really clear was after Dave said, we have to take to the skies. The only connectivity that we can draw out of this incongruent landscape that's just completely sliced and diced is in the air. And the flyways remain basically the same every year. And so we went and greedily grabbed up a bunch of data on flyaway stuff from Audubon and Cornell, and it started to feel a lot better in a kind of weird way because you're looking at such an altered landscape that the only connectivity factor there that really jumps out at you is the water. There's a little buffer around rivers and creeks, usually a little one, a tiny one, and then everything that has to squeeze through those places, the bobcats, and and stay out of sight in places that are completely overrun with crops and uh farms and everything that was the way to look at it and i wonder if that's something about how your mind map looks as well it's because you're on the ground is the springs and the waterways and in the air i see so many of your photographs are of burbs (laughs) and i feel like you have a connection there and that you're starting not starting to but you look at the world in a different way based on what they have to navigate to live their lives and do the things that they do
1: yeah absolutely like I I notice the birds who show up in my yard like I pay attention to migration season I pay attention to who's around I really tell a lot of stories about birds and what their needs are and it just keeps coming back to water and springs and food of course but being a a flying creature moving thousands of miles every year from south to north and north to south. Uh, These little dots in the landscape where there's water and open space and most likely food are really important. Um, And it has connected me definitely more to the birds and the experience of birds in such a dry, even just passing through a dry landscape and what the needs are. Yeah.
0: Christina, what do you want your work, your contribution to contribute to the overall Places that you love being also connected to places you don't even know, but you love them because they're there.
1: Yeah. I've always had a connection to nature. We went out into nature a lot. My father took us camping and out outside. And I take it sometimes for granted that I have that. When I realize talking to other people, like a lot of other people just don't have either the opportunity or the life experience to enjoy being in nature or whatever it is. And so that's one thing that I want to share through my work and why I think I'm connected to visual storytelling. And I also do writing, although really? really focusing more on visuals these days, just to have that experience of gratitude that I have for nature. It's like given me so much in my life, so much Health and vitality, and rejuvenation, and contemplation, and experience of something greater than myself, and to try to share that in some small way through through visuals that sort of captivate people and have them think, huh, maybe that's something I want to experience as well. So there's that, and then there's also cultivating that love, that relationship, which sort of society is moving away from. Like, I'm trying to pull my little thread back to it and then get people to to act from that care. I like these stories that are a little bit of the underdog, like I'm not taking on the Colorado River watershed, which, you know, another friend of mine, Dave Showalter, just did a book on this beautiful work that he's doing on this whole river's watershed. But that kind of thing can also feel overwhelming. And what I like about these stories, they're very local, they're very small, they're something that somebody in their backyard might just have a spring and they can figure out, they can go out there and spend some time with it and work to restore it and through that have a relationship again with that place. And there are 60,000 people across the Southwest. If they each took on one spring, we would be in a lot better shape than we're in now in terms mm. of providing There's millions of people. So that's not asking a whole lot in terms of percentages of people getting involved. And yeah, so I want people to be be re-enchanted to care and to take action, like hands-on things that will benefit nature and also benefit themselves through that relationship.
0: Yeah. Your medium, they they always, the age-old thing that I'm sure that you're, you, you could do with never hearing again, but a picture being worth a thousand words, I disagree with that. I think it depends on the photographer and the subject and for me at least the main picture that you have for your 82823 post seven locations for wildflower photography in new mexico i can there's a difference there um i don't know how to describe it and maybe you can describe it everything is so video centric now on the internet most of the traffic most of the eyeballs everybody knows if you're really going to do a good job of getting a lot of attention If you can afford to do it, the time and everything else, you have to do video, they tell you. Mm -hmm. But I really like photographers. There's some people that I follow who are on YouTube that record their travels around the world. And it's completely a video format. And a picture like yours, if they even came remotely close to taking one, like the one I'm talking about, would fly by in 10 seconds or less or five or two seconds. And But you, your medium slows people down. In my view, and it it makes me, I could sit and look at your, this photo for quite a long time and listen to the story it's telling me without even, before I even get into what you have to say about it yourself. What is that all about? What draws you to that? There's a lot of ways to tell stories, and this is the one that you've chosen. What is it at its core for you that works so well in the way that I'm trying very poorly to describe for me?
1: Yeah, I think you've hit on a lot of photographers who are trying to tell stories and get people engaged, a a challenge that we're up against. There's millions of pictures posted on social media and the web every day. So we're competing for eyeballs with every Joe Schmo's image. But what I think a lot of us are really focusing on is we're not just snapping pretty pictures we're telling a story whether that's through one image or a photo essay of 20 images and i've dabbled in video and i appreciate video and and the power of that as well but there's something sort of contrary about a photo a photograph these days that like you're saying just when you can really grab somebody's attention with it and have them pause for a moment that goes against this constant like slipping through everything everything digital all day long and moving at a, such a high pace it's maybe a stepping stone to actual like the pause the longer pause and the longer moment of quietness and stillness we need to really appreciate this beautiful planet that we live on so maybe videos like a first up there and then a Photograph slows you down even more, and then maybe you'll be a little bit more open to the actual experience of it. Um, and I don't know, maybe we're becoming old school as people who still enjoy stills and, and photographs, but there's something that medium has its own power in its own right. And I think will endure for whatever direction that we go on. So I'm also interested in actual real presenting my photography in actual spaces i have an outdoor photograph exhibit on another topic at the botanical garden where people are walking through trails and they see the photographs and learn a little bit as they go and combining photography with the actual place that it's telling the story about is a big interest of mine and engaging people not in the digital environment, I think photography can still be really powerful.
0: Yeah, it's sad that the noise is so noisy. And people would probably almost always have a better experience if they found storytellers like you and were able to slow down and be thankful for an experience they weren't even looking for. Because Mm. everybody wants more, faster. I want more, I want to consume content. And that's not really what You're trying to get people to stop or lower that threshold of being satisfied (laughs) to just slow down. And I always really appreciate that. I don't know if there's very many people who talk to you about those things, but we are out here and we really appreciate photographers and storytellers like you. Just for that very reason, it's just meditative to get away from all the crazy noise and slow down. So thank you for all the work that you do Mm. Uh, just for that. And I think a lot of conservationists really need to pay attention to more or are trying to find out what it's going to take to, we have to live in that world. If we want to get attention for our organizations and things like that, we have to be on social media in some way, or or that's just where the eyeballs are, for better or worse. But placing ourselves in that environment, that's not really a natural place for us, our kind of people who really talk a lot about peace and sitting in place and just listening to the wind for an hour that's not something that most of the people who use the internet think about or do we and so their world is a little abrasive for us to be in so yeah i think it's but it's still worth it and i think if this turns old school or if people think of it that way now um when they reach a a a personal crisis moment where they're just overloaded they're going to really some They're going to always gravitate back toward this kind of stuff, I think. I hope they do. I hope they know it's available when they're really lost in all of the noise. So that's why we want to highlight artists like you as much as everyone else that we talk to on this podcast, just for this many reasons. But for me, this is one of the big ones.
1: Yeah. And I don't want to... There's a lot of value in what some people... I have some very good friends photographers that are 20 years my junior and doing some really interesting stuff online even with like little dance videos for conservation <laughs> which is very cool I like that stuff as well but I feel that I can engage that sometimes there are artists and people who are whose strengths is just like helping people again slow down and connect and be more real with each other and be in this Incredible nature that we're actually talking about being in and having an experience that would change their life. So I appreciate that you also see
0: the value in both of those things. What's the thing that you want people in the Southwest, particularly, to know about the work that you do, the things that you focus on, the springs, the water, the birds, whatever it might be? But what you have a platform, let's pretend like you're on a platform that can talk to everyone in the Southwest and people in DC and the State House. <laughs> Uh, what do you want them to know? What What is so special about what you've seen, what you've learned, and what you love?
1: The Southwest is such an incredibly beautiful and unique place. Springs are a metaphor for ourselves and our relationships. They are like these windows into the earth. They're these windows into our the health of our groundwater. But they're also, if we we're just saying can slow down and contemplate for a minute, we can see that they're a metaphor for our relationship with nature. And the Southwest is going to have a lot of changes. It's still going to be beautiful. And as things warm up and heat up, water is going to become even more important. And so it's not just the rivers and not just the permanent water sources or the lakes or the reservoirs, but it's these small, overlooked ecosystems that we also need to pay attention to and that people can have a big impact on and they're holding so much of our of the uniqueness of this area because without these small little springs we would have probably fewer birds fewer mammals fewer unique species fewer fish and they're a key point in the entire southwest um, especially as things get hotter and drier i think just what I want people to know about the Southwest is that it's deserving of attention. There's a lot of history, a lot of spirituality. A lot of the indigenous people have prayed over these springs for years and continue to pray over them. And that's a big part of why they're still around. And, and so we, we can give a bit of our attention to these things and it'll go a long way.
0: What should people read? What's a book that people maybe should pick up? To understand more about your part of the world, especially our people listening who don't live in the Southwest, maybe have visited a couple times. That's maybe spring or not specific.
1: Yeah, I think there's a few resources. I've been reading a lot of the heavy science things published by Larry Stevens from the Spring Stewardship Institute. There's Arid Land Springs. It's just a collection of different science on um, these springs. He also published a handbook on their restoration. I think instead of reinventing the wheel, just go to that website, Spring Stewardship Institute, and there's so many resources there. But then there's also writers like Craig Childs that writes beautiful, captivating essays about water in the Southwest and its importance. It's a very much like growing field of science. It has a lot to do with hydrogeology, which took me many months to dig into the lingo of that and understand it. But there, and I'm looking for ways of translating that to the general public and and sharing it and making it accessible.
0: Thank you. I also appreciate people who do that. People who can translate uh, because that's it's difficult running around with people. Dave Foreman was really good at bridging that. He didn't have that heavy-duty science background, but he could hold a conversation with Michael Soule and Reed Noss and, and anyone else on the finer points of conservation biology and biogeography and it was amazing to see but i it was amazing because it's so rare for people to be able to help in that way and to be a bridge between the guys who get really into the weeds in my opinion because i'm not a scientist yeah that's (laughs) true and and people like more like me who who need like what'd you just say
1: oh my gosh i i have a degree in ecology and so i had the some facility although it was more than 20 years ago that i was studying it but i've kept up my skills but sitting down with a hydrogeologist for the first couple hours is okay what, let's <laughs> start over again they described this one word to me Let me this up. and so i i get it why people turn away from science because it's it can be so dense and scientists can talk to each just each other so often so i appreciate a well, person larry stevens has more facility speaking to the public but a lot of scientists aren't trained to do that. And so it's one role that I play translating very dense work into something that people can understand and feel
0: into and understand the world better. All of these guys, if they're really into what they're doing and they're providing really good research and things, you don't want them to stop and become a great communicator. That's going to slow them down from doing the great work that they're doing. Hmm. But without somebody to translate all of that stuff into something that people can, you know, understand who are pursuing a scientific degree or anything it's really vitally important so there you go you're the beaver of the information ecosystem storytelling whatever it's a working perfect. title perfect i'll take it all right christina thank you so much for taking the time to do this
1: thanks for having me and for your interest in this these tiny little beautiful ecosystems and hope more people get involved
0: thanks for listening to the rewilding earth podcast we do what we do because of you this podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.